Good morning. Praise the Lord for the beautiful sunshine this week and it, even this morning. Please stand and join us as we sing our praises to him.
great to see you as we gather for worship today, and uh, there are some things I want to highlight. It's in the life of the church. Uh, Wednesday evening, all our ministries are on regular schedule, and next Sunday morning, we gather for worship again at 8, 20, 9, 40, and 11. Uh, you'll notice that there are some uh, off opportunities for ministry listed in the bulletin. Uh, one is for uh, folks who work in Children's Church on Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday, and your help be greatly appreciated. It's an opportunity to give of yourself to our children. And so if you're interested in that, you can uh, contact Pastor Cindy about that. Uh, just contact the church office and we'll get you in touch with the right people. Uh, also, uh, some folks who are wanting to attend a membership class that I had a couple of weeks ago and were unable to do so. So I'm going to offer another one. Uh, if you're interested in attending a membership class, uh, just let me know and then we'll get everyone together and figure out the best date to do that probably in the next uh, couple of weeks. Uh, on April 6th, which is Good Friday, we are hosting uh, a special prayer event, and uh, we will be uh, putting the uh, gym, the community room, into a uh, journey to, of the cross. And there will be uh, 10 destinations that uh, will be a part of that gathering. And it's a kind of event between 10 and 6 where you can come and go 
to uh, just experience a little bit more, some uh, interactively, others uh, reflecting uh, on the, uh, the events uh, leading up to and events of the cross. And so I think it should be a great event, an opportunity for us to, to think about the sacrifice and, and the cross of Christ as uh, we move uh, into, uh, continue into the season of Lent and into that Good Friday. So we hope you'll be able to be a part of that. Uh, Easter morning, uh, Easter is April 8th, uh, we will again, it's been our practice, uh, have baptism available for those who are interested. If you're interested in being baptized on Easter morning, just let me know and uh, we will get together a class in the next couple of weeks to prepare for that. There are a number of prayer concerns also in the bulletin. Uh, we do want to pray for um, the family of uh, Martha Wacker, Warren Woolsey's sister who died unexpectedly uh, Thursday of this week. And we want to pray for uh, her family and uh, ask for God's grace upon them. This time we'll ask the ushers to come, assist us in the giving of our tithes and offerings. Children ages 2 to 5 may be dismissed for Children's Church.
Our scripture passage this morning comes from Luke chapter 22, verses 31 to 46. I would ask you to stand for the reading of the gospel, but you're already standing. Luke chapter 22, verses 31 to 46. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon. That your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times that you know me. Then Jesus asked him, when I sent you with Out purse, bag, or sandals. Did you lack anything? Nothing, they answered. He said to them, But now if you have a purse, take it, and also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. It is written, And he was numbered with the transgressors. But I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. The disciples said, See, Lord, here are two swords. That is enough, he replied. Then Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down, and prayed. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep Exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping? He asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, At this time, children ages two to six may be dismissed. And uh, you may be seated. So oh. 
Father, we sing of your grace and your greatness, and we thank you for your mercy in our lives, and we ask that as we continue to worship you, that you would help us to know you and understand more of what it means to follow you, and we ask this through Christ, amen. if you think this the way that I do sometimes, but there is there's something in the back of my mind that thinks, believes that if you're a follower of Christ, life ought to be easier than harder. If you, if you make a choice to, to say, I'm going to, I'm going to focus my attention on on Jesus, I'm going to give my my heart and my mind and my my life to Jesus, and I'm gonna and I would give my all of my attention to Jesus. That the reward for that ought to be less pressure and less stuff coming at us and less difficulties to face. I don't know if you ever think that way, but I do. I feel that way sometimes. And as I was thinking about that recently, I was reminded of, of a story that is told of uh, St. Teresa of Avila, a 16th century Spanish mystic, deeply spiritual woman who was one day out on a journey and she came to a stream that was swollen and she had to get across it and she, she made, it, made her way across but with, with, a, with great difficulty Stumbled a few times and almost was, was washed away by the stream. She got to the other side. That night she had a dream. And in her dream she had a, a vision of talking to God. And in the midst of that conversation she said, Lord, I, I don't understand. I was on a journey for you and I'm, and I'm doing my best to follow you. Why would you put such difficulties in front of me? And, and, and something that, that almost took my life. Why would, you, why would you do that? And she heard the Lord saying to her, well, Teresa... That's the way I treat my friends. And she said to him, well, Lord, it's no wonder you have so few of them. You know, there's something in the back of our minds that that believes that the reward for being a follower of Christ ought to be life just a little bit easier, a little bit simpler, a little less pressure. But the reality is that for followers of God... Actually, the pressure increases, and the stress becomes more, and, and the opposition becomes greater. And in fact, I've come to the conclusion that the more we, we journey with Christ, and, and the, the more we, we commit ourselves to Christ, the difficulties don't decrease, they increase. And it's not just about, you know... Opposition that we may face or, or difficult times that we may go through. But, but one of the key places we see this is, is in the temptations of life that come to us. The more we want to follow Christ and the more committed we are to following Christ, we want to think that the temptations of life become less, but actually I think they become more. Because we are going against the grain of the world, and more, more importantly, against our enemy who is doing everything to oppose us. This is the picture we get of, of what the disciples are facing in this passage that we read from Luke's gospel a few moments ago. 
Jesus and his disciples have been meeting in the upper room. It's that last night before Jesus is arrested. The night he is arrested, he goes to the cross. And they're meeting there in the upper room. And Jesus has, has poured out his heart to them. They've, they've shared this meal. He's, he's instituted the, the Lord's Supper. He's told them that one of them is going to betray him. And there's this big conversation about which one of them could possibly do that. Which then evolves into which one of them is the greatest in the kingdom. And Jesus interrupts them and says, you do realize that difficult days are ahead. He says, to, he says, Simon, Satan wants to sift you like wheat. I'm not sure exactly what that phrase means, but obviously it has something to do with putting pressure on them and tearing them apart. And it isn't just talking to Simon. The, the, the pronoun is plural here. And one of the translations said, says, he wants to sift all of you like wheat. It's not just about Peter. This is about all the disciples who believe that they are so spiritual that they actually could be considered the greatest in the kingdom. And Jesus says, you guys are in for some difficult times. And they don't realize that. And the temptation that they're facing is is to believe that the closer they get to Christ, the more committed they are to following Christ, the, the more opposition that's going to come to them. And the evil one really wants to take these guys down because they're going to be the leaders of the church. The potential in their lives for being representatives of Christ in this world is huge. And, and the plans that Christ has for them are, are, are phenomenal. And the evil one wants to try to stop them. In his book, The Ring of Truth, J.B. Phillips says, the nearer a person's will approaches God's, the more apparent and stronger and, and more formidable this opposition has seemed to be. It's only when we're going in more or less the same direction as our enemy that we really don't feel any opposition. You know, when, you, when you're running against the wind, you can really feel it. When you're running with the wind, you don't even notice it. And if we're running... For, with Christ, we're going to be running in the opposite direction of the evil one, and he's going to be pushing and pushing and pushing against us. And what we really find is that the more committed we are to following Christ, the stronger the opposition is going to be. And that's not a sign of weakness, it's a sign that we're on the right path. When you think back to the scriptures, I don't think there's anyone who who faces more, uh, more difficult and intense temptation to turn from God than Job does. And yet, how does God describe Job? Is it because Job is so weak? No, God says, if you, says to Satan, if you looked on the earth, who's the most godly person down there? It's my servant Job. And so instead of seeing temptation as, as something that, that may identify our weakness, it actually means that we're on the right track. But the more committed we are to Christ, the more opposition we ought to expect. But the problem also that, that we discover in that is that we have a tendency in our strength to see our strength as being about us. And we are never more vulnerable to to the threat of temptation and the power of temptation then we begin, when we begin to overestimate our strength because of our successes. It, it's sort of this vicious cycle that, that the stronger we get in Christ, the more tempted we are to feel like it's really about us. And the more we begin to think it's about us, the more susceptible we are to being tempted and to giving in to that temptation. Think about the as they're, as they're in the garden, and as Jesus and his disciples are, are there, and Jesus is praying, and, and they're wrestling with their response to, to all that Jesus has said to them, there is this sense that you get from Peter, and I think the other disciples would affirm that, that they're fine. You know, Jesus is saying, watch out, and Peter's saying, why don't you need to watch out? I'll go to prison. I'll go to death for you, Christ. I'm a lot stronger than you think I am. And I can almost see Jesus just shaking his head saying, Peter, you just don't get it, do you? You overestimate your strength. And we find out as the story goes on how much Peter overestimates his strength. 
You think back to the, to the Garden of Eden and the, the temptation that our first father and mother face. And, and it's all about believing that they are good enough to make decisions about their own lives. That they know more than God does about what is good and right. And we're tempted to do the same thing. And no, we're no more susceptible to that temptation than when we have some successes, some spiritual successes in our lives. Because we start thinking, wow, I'm pretty good, aren't I? I'm making a lot of progress, aren't I? I'm pretty spiritual. John Wesley used to say to, to his followers that he, 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 in one hand, he wanted them to testify to the great experiences they've had with God. But that he also was hesitant about that too because he knew the moment people started talking about their great experiences with God, that was the very moment when pride would so easily creep into their life. And what they began talking about was not what God was doing in their lives, but look at me. And we're no more susceptible to that. And that subtle temptation to pride and and look at how good I am than when we're successful. And you see it in Peter. And you see it in in our lives as we we go work out our, our, our lives with Christ. And we begin having some successes. And we see great things happen. And it's so subtly tempting to turn from look what God is doing to look at what I'm doing. Will Williman tells us, teaching a Sunday school class one day, and they were talking about temptation. And he asked the class, so what ways are you guys tempted? And one of the guys spoke up and he said, I'll tell you, Temptation it comes at you like it did to me this week when, when my boss called me in his office. He said, man, you are doing so great. You are, such, you, are best, you are the best salesman we have. And in order to reward you, we want to give you a larger sales territory. And this is going to be a great promotion for you. And it's going to be awesome. He said, I said to my boss, but I don't want a larger sales territory. I'm already away from my family four nights a week. I don't want that. I said, my boss said to me, but look, this is, this, we're doing this for you, for your family. Because your, your family has, has great financial needs. You have children. They're, they're going to have expenses as they keep getting older. And this is a way for you to cover those things. We're doing this for your family. This, this is a great opportunity. You're going to make more money. You're going to have more recognition. You're just going to keep going up the ladder. And he said, that's temptation. That success breeds success breeds success but only in the way that we tend to measure it. And this kind of, of thinking that, that success keeps moving us forward is, it comes out in, in our daily decisions that we make. The daily decisions that, if we really analyze them, are, are declaring, I know better than God does. The things of this world are more significant to me than God is. When you stop and analyze the times when we have a choice and we have a conscious choice about going the way of God or going the way of self, and we go the way of self, why do we do that? Because something deep in our minds believes that this is going to bring me fulfillment, have a better chance of getting, being fulfilled and getting what I want than this does. That's the only reason we do it. There's something about this decision that causes us to believe that this is better and the way of God. And we rationalize that and we talk about, you know, I deserve this, it's success, I, I know better, God doesn't quite understand. And we, and we realize, we wake up and realize we have given in and we've been more susceptible to that temptation than we ever could have realized. What's interesting to me as I read through this story is that As you look at at Luke's snapshot of this garden scene and of Jesus meeting with his disciples, and as Jesus is warning them and talking to them, it is so clear that Jesus believes that the most powerful defense against temptation is earnest and honest prayer. We would tend to say, I just need to work a little harder. I just need to do a little bit more. But Jesus is clearly telling them it's about prayer. 
He says to them, prayer is really, and he shows them with his, own, with his own decisions that he makes and the way he acts and what he does. He tells them clearly that the battle against temptation is won in prayer. When you look at this story of Jesus going to the cross, the battle isn't won as Jesus hangs on the cross. The battle is won as Jesus prays in the garden. His willingness to go to the cross is simply the result of that. It's settled in the garden. Jesus mentions prayer five times in this brief passage. Verse 39 says, Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives and his disciples followed him. And reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you'll not fall into temptation. And he withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them and knelt down and he prayed. Verse 45, when he rose from prayer, went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. And he said, get up and pray so that you'll not fall into temptation. It's clear Jesus connects the solution to fighting temptation with that sense of earnest, honest praying. Jesus encourages his disciples to pray so that they won't fall into temptation. And it reminds us of of what Jesus teaches us about prayer in the Lord's Prayer. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And, you know, if you're like me, you think, why would we have to pray for God not to lead us into temptation? And there's a lot of theories about what he's talking about, but I like what Dallas Willard says about that. He says it expresses the understanding that we simply cannot stand up under very much pressure. It's a vote of no confidence in our abilities against the temptations that come to us. That's a humbling thing to admit. And when it comes to the temptations that that we face in life, we overestimate ourselves all the time. And this prayer is declaring, I don't want to do that. This prayer is declaring, Lord, if, if it's not for you, I'm dead. I've got nothing. But so I pray. Unfortunately for the disciples, they decide to sleep instead of pray. You know, there's nothing wrong with sleeping. We need sleep. We're we're created for sleep. Our, Our bodies crave and need sleep. But the problem is discerning when to sleep and when to pray. I was thinking about the story in Luke 8. Jesus and his disciples are out in the boat and a storm comes up. And what's interesting is you contrast those two scenes of the garden and the boat and the storm comes up and they feel like they're about to drown. You find that the disciples in the boat are panicked about the storm while Jesus is sound asleep. And you come to the garden and the disciples are asleep and Jesus is earnest in prayer. And somehow Jesus understands the moments when it's time to rest, time to sleep, and time to pray. And the disciples haven't yet figured that out. The great thing is when we move, read on through the, the book of Acts, we discover that they get it. And they come to realize that, that they're about the times that are right to sleep and right to pray. But at the heart of all of that is this sense that temptation is so strong that we have to take prayer seriously. And I suspect that most of us don't. Most of us sort of dabble with prayer. I mean, really honest, earnest, deep prayer. The kind of prayer that that Jesus engages in where he's sweating so much it's like drops of blood falling off of him. We we sort of dabble with that sometimes. We don't really really experience that in the ways that, that I think God designs it for us. I suspect that perhaps we're, we're like the story I read of the man who sort of lost his temper in front of his pastor and, and swore. He's kind of embarrassed by that. And after a few moments of sort of awkward silence, he said to the pastor, well, you know, I swear a little, you pray a little. Neither one of us means very much by it. That's kind of telling, but it... it, it probably is more true than not. That we pray, but do we really pray the 
kind of honest, earnest prayer that we see from Jesus where he pours out his heart before the Father. And he says, this is, this is where I'm agonizing. This is where I'm tempted. This is my struggle. And you know my struggle. And you know the battle that's going on here. And you compare that with Peter. He says, why do I need to pray? I'm perfectly fine. I got this covered. I think that's probably the response for most of us. Now, some, you know, we, we tend to pray when we're panicked. We tend to pray when we're, you know, we're, we're standing on the edge of the cliff. But what about developing this, this day-by-day, moment-by-moment kind of life of prayer? Prayer that, a life that says prayer is so important to me. I take it so seriously that I give time and energy and focus to it. And if people had a hidden camera on my life, they'd be able to tell how important prayer is to me. Not just by the amount of time I spend praying, but the way I engage myself in prayer. So I think what we miss is that, that when we get down to it, I think what, what the scriptures are trying to tell us over and over again is that prayer is really the heart language of the kingdom. If we're going to be a part of the kingdom of God, then prayer will become our heart language. It's the default language for the people of Christ. Back in the mid-80s when my parents went to the Philippines as missionaries, they were batting around whether they, they needed to learn Tagalog. The official language of the Philippines is English. And they were in Manila, and they were working with the upper-class group of people, and almost everyone they would encounter would speak English. And they were, you know, in their mid-40s and learning a new language at that point. is kind of hard, and so they were batting that around, and they were thinking maybe they wouldn't worry about it. But after they had spent a few months there, they came to the realization that they needed to learn Tagalog. Because while the people, the Filipinos certainly spoke English... Their heart language was Tagalog. When they wanted to, to express the emotion deep within them, when they, when they were hurting, when they were excited, when they, when they were really expressing what was in their hearts, Tagalog is what came out. And they realized that if they were ever going to really understand the heart of the Filipino people, they needed to have a working knowledge of Tagalog. And there's something about that in, 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 in prayer for the followers of Christ. And we can't just dabble at it or just sort of walk around the edges of it. It's the heart language of the kingdom. It's the language that the people of God speak. And, and, and I think God's design for, for us in prayer is that it, it becomes our default language. So that when we're, when we're in a difficult experience, we pray. And when life is good, we pray. When we go about our day, we pray. When we're facing a, a struggle, we pray. It becomes the default language of our lives. And that doesn't happen overnight. It takes time and, and it takes energy and it takes, it takes a decision on our part to develop that. But prayer is so important to us that we do it. That we're willing to to invest ourselves in being people who pray. That's why we have, we have tried over the last few years to, to really make a, a strong emphasis as, as a church body to be people who pray. Not just when we have a prayer vigil, but to use those prayer vigils to, to kickstart our prayer lives and to have time where we really focus on it, not to the exclusion of all the other times, but to motivate us about how we pray the rest of the year. Because it's clear when we, when we read the scriptures that it's the people who know how to pray who in the face temptations stand tall and stand firm. What's interesting to me is that Jesus also connects praying and watching. And people who pray are people who are prepared and ready. You look at verse uh, chapter 21 Verses 34 and 35 and 36, Jesus says, Be careful. Be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that's about to happen, that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. Because watch and pray. And as we give ourselves to prayer, as we become people who pray, watching just sort of naturally flows out of us. 
because we're ready. It's because Jesus could, could, was a person of prayer that when the storm arose in the boat, he could sleep, he could rest because he was ready. And instead of prayer becoming sort of a panicked response when something difficult comes, prayer becomes so much a part of us that we're ready, we're prepared. We're like a sentry standing on, on guard at the, at the top, out on the wall of the, of the, uh, the, the fort. And we're watching. And when we see an enemy approaching, we don't panic because we're ready. We, we call the people to, to, be, to get going. But we aren't panicked about it because we're prepared. And prayer prepares us and the watching helps us to see what's coming. We need to watch because the enemy comes at us in every way that he possibly can. And his most difficult and dangerous temptations are those subtle ones that sneak in on us when we aren't watching. But when we're people of prayer, we are so connected to God, listening to God, focused on God, connected to God. That when the enemy's subtle temptations come, we are much more likely to see it and to stand up against it. Not because of our strength, but because we are tapped in to the presence and the power of the Spirit of God. I was thinking back about when I was in high school the, the first car that I owned was a 1966 Chevy Impala. My uh, sister gave it to me when she went to college, which tells you something about its value. And uh, my uncle gave it to her uh, a couple of years before that. It was a kind of car, you know, of course, you know, huge car and probably got about three miles to the gallon. That's not exactly it, but... Uh, I'm coming to that in a second. But um, when I, when this car was the kind of thing that eventually got to the spot where when you were, when you were driving along, you were ever quite sure if it was going to shift into the next gear or not. And so you'd be going in first gear, hoping to get into second, and you never knew if it was going to happen. And finally, I decided, this is ridiculous. I need a new car. So my dad and I looked, scanned the papers, and we finally found, found a, 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 probably like a 73 Chevy Vega. And uh, this is a picture of me driving it one day and down the road. You can, yeah, okay. You don't believe that, do you? The next picture is probably a little bit more like the car that, that I actually purchased. But um, I bought this car and looking at it, and my dad, I liked the car. I, I liked you know, the gas mileage. I, I liked the feel of it, a little sporty. The one problem with it was that it was a manual transmission. And I'd never driven a manual transmission before. So, you know, I'm taking this car out, trying to drive it, you know, killing it every 30 seconds. And uh, my dad said to me, well, if you like the car, it's a good price. If the only thing holding you back is not knowing how to drive a manual transmission, don't let that stop you. Because if you keep working at it, it'll become second nature to you. And I have to be honest with you, I didn't believe him. And, and I certainly wrestled with that because I did end up buying the car and I can remember so many mornings... Being, you know, late for school, that's typically the case, and waiting at the stoplight by the school, looking in the rearview mirror, and about five or six of my friends and other students behind me, all of us late for school, were waiting at the light to turn where, where we were at the school. You came to this light and you made a U-turn around to the school. And, you know, everybody's in a hurry. Everybody's ready to go. The light turns green. I pop the clutch and it dies. You know, and they're all honking their horns and yelling at me, you know, and, and morning after morning after morning, you know, this happens. And I'm thinking, why did I buy this car? This is ridiculous. And I remember all of a sudden one morning being at the light, it turns green, I take off. And all of a sudden it hit me, I didn't have any trouble that day. And I didn't even think about, I didn't even think about the getting the clutch and the gas just right. It just happened. It just became second nature, like my dad said. And I never had any, you know, you didn't think about it. You come up as you're slowing down. I, I didn't think any more about, okay, I got a downshift now. I didn't think any more about when do I shift into third gear. It, you just did it. 
it became second nature. And I think there is something of that about watching and praying that we engage ourselves in it so much and so often that as life develops and as things come on, it it becomes the most natural thing in the world for us. And it becomes second nature for us. Not because it's easy. And not because it's simple. But because it's important. And because we do it over and over and over again. Because we recognize how serious the temptations are that come against us. And we recognize that the the only defense we have is connecting ourselves with God through prayer. And what's interesting is that as you come to the cross, we realize that that the cross opens up the way for us to pray. In the cross, our relationship with Christ that has been separated by sin is now brought together. And there is a new sense of relationship with God that we can experience through prayer. And temptation becomes a different thing in our lives because we're connected to God through prayer. But here's the, here's the good news. Because none of us are perfect, we're going to fall short. Because none of us are perfect, we're going to fail when temptation comes at us. And when we do, we have to know that in the cross, there is grace. In the cross, there is continually grace. Even when we, we don't develop the kind of prayer life that we wish we had, in the cross there's grace. When we fall short, when the temptations fight against us, in the cross there's grace. Because everything about Christ is grace. Everything about the way of the cross is grace. And I look at, at the story of the contrast between Judas and Peter. And both of them turned their backs on Christ. But something in Peter's psyche, something in in Peter's relationship with Jesus, something in him knows that there is grace that Judas doesn't quite get. And Jesus knows they're going to fail. I I love in verse 32 when when Jesus says to Simon, he says, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned back, Strengthen your brothers. You get this sense Jesus says, okay, Simon, I pray that you wouldn't fail. But when you do, because I know you're going to, let's come back to this thing. And and there's grace. And what great hope for us. Because see, something inside of us wants to believe that if you're really a follower of Christ, you're perfect. And when we fail, the enemy is continually coming to us and saying, you are such a hypocrite. You are such a failure. You might as well give up. Why why do you even try? How many times has this happened to you? How many times are you going to give in to this? You realize God has had enough of you. The enemy continually is throwing those messages at us. And it's in those moments we look to the cross and we see grace. And we hear Christ saying to us, come on back. Let's start over. Let's move forward. And if we have developed any kind of relationship with the Father through prayer, we hear those words of grace and we receive his forgiveness and we move forward. I'm convinced that that taking prayer seriously as Jesus does is the key Overcoming the temptations that come to us of standing up against them and of experiencing his grace when we fall in the face of them. The great pastor S.D. Gordon once said, how much prayer meant to Jesus 
When he was perplexed, he prayed. When he was hard-pressed by work, he prayed. When he hungered for fellowship, he prayed. He chose his associates and received his messages in prayer. When he was tempted, he prayed. When he was criticized, he prayed. When he was fatigued in body and spirit, he prayed. Prayer brought him unmeasured power at the beginning and kept the flow unbroken and undiminished. There was no emergency, no difficulty, no necessity, no temptation that would not yield to prayer. For Jesus, it is his lifeline. And as you and I are called to take up our cross and follow him, is it ours? In the face of all that we encounter, do we hear him calling to us, come, let's join together and know my grace. Heavenly Father, we pray that you will help us And we ask this through Christ. Amen. We're going we're to spend our time praying together now. And as we've been talking in many weeks, the altar's open for you to come. And, and as we recognize that all of us, all of us face the temptations of the evil one... All of us are encountering things. All of us need grace. Let's pray for God's power and spirit in our lives. And if you'd like to come and use the altar as your place of prayer, I invite you to join me. Heavenly Father, you know our weakness. You know the struggles that we all encounter and that we all wrestle with. And our natural human inclination is denial, despair. Lord, help us today to trust you enough to be honest about the things that we wrestle with and to find in Christ grace. Father, help us to look to the cross and to see grace. And help us to look to the cross and see power. Power to overcome, power to stand firm, not in ourselves, but in you. Lord, we pray that you will help us to see more and more the the need and the calling to make prayer our heart language. Lord, give us grace to take temptation so seriously that we take prayer so seriously. Father, help us to hear you calling us to intimacy with you, to hear you, to know you, and to receive from you your mercy. Father, we pray not only for ourselves today, but for everyone who is struggling with the burdens of this life. We pray, Father, for all who are grieving. We pray for all who are, who are dealing with difficulties of body and mind and spirit. We pray, Father, for those places in our lives and in the lives of of those connected to us where we need your healing and we need your touch. 
Father, we pray for this world in which we live. And again this week, we're reminded over and over again of the evil one's desire to bring pain and violence and war and chaos and conflict. And we pray, Father, that in your grace, you will bring peace. Give your people throughout the world the presence of your spirit to be peace in the midst of difficult circumstances. Unleash your spirit in the places where the evil one is working so hard to destroy. Father, thank you for hearing our prayers. Thank you for calling us into relationship with you. Help us to be more and more mindful and committed to be people whose heart language is prayer. We pray this, Father, through the grace of Christ, the one who teaches us the model for prayer, which now we pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Please stand as we sing.
May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen.